Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to season two of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with the medicinal chef, Dale Pinnock. Dale has authored over 14 books on nutrition and health and frequently writes articles and makes TV appearances, including the popular ITV series, Eat, Shop, Save. In this episode, we are talking about how food can affect the body and using food as medicine. So, without further ado, Dale, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Dale, you are highly qualified in different aspects of nutrition. When did your interest in nutrition begin? Blimey. Um, I think my journey into it probably is very similar to other people's journey in that I had my own health issues. It was from the age of about 10 or 11. It was the, actually the, the summer of leaving primary school to go to secondary school. I started getting really bad acne. And it was pretty full on. It looked like I'd been shot in the face with a blunderbuss. It kind of came on really, really quickly and it was quite relentless. And I went to all sorts of different specialists and tried all manner of lotions and potions, the topical antibiotics, the oral antibiotics, the vitamin A preparations, weird gungy gels and God knows what. And nothing <laughs> really made a huge amount of difference. And I got to the age of about 15 and um, I was sat around at my friend's house one night moping, feeling sorry for myself. And his mum lent me this book. And it was a book called Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond, which is like a proper old school nutrition book from the, the very early 80s that was all about food combining and that kind of stuff. Obviously, I look at it now and it's um, not exactly grounded in science. But <laughs> back then, it was my first introduction to this this concept that we could actively engage in our own healthcare. So I read this thing pretty much in a weekend and that was it. I became hooked. I... I easily read over a thousand books on nutrition and and health in a, a couple of years. I used myself as a guinea pig, um, put myself in hospital a couple of times, but that's a story for another day. Right. Uh, just you, yeah, just became completely utterly obsessed with the the subject. So we're talking 1992 here. Do you know what I mean, we're talking smack bang in the middle of the rave era and a, a really a time when it wasn't exactly a popular thing in this country, nutrition and health. You know, we were, it was very much the music generation and, and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't easy to, to get good quality resources and, and good quality foods, but I became fixated on it. And then after sort of seven or eight years, I actually decided to study it at a meaningful level and went off to university, um, did my first degree in human nutrition. Then, during the end of that, towards the tail end of that nutrition degree, I was getting more and more interested in phytochemistry, like, you know, compounds in plant-based foods that aren't nutrients in their own right. So you can't display notable deficiency signs in them, but they do elicit a pharmacological activity. So the only way that you could kind of study these compounds back then was to do a herbal medicine degree. So that was my second undergrad. 
and then had a little break from studying for a couple of years and yeah. then went on, on to do the um the msc nutritional medicine at the university of surrey so i've been into it since since 1992 but it's been a, a staggered journey and it's it's been a, a journey of evolution in all that time fantastic and i'm sure you've seen a lot of things change during that time <laughs> i have i have um but also there's there's some things that have come around full full cycle as well and i've always known that it's become going to become this very very mainstream very very popular thing but i never knew that it would get so weirdly entwined in fashion so that was quite a quite a surprise but yeah i mean most of the stuff that's around now has been around in one guise or another back then as well it's just the uh, the level of exposure that we have today that's that's different but also i think the thing that's different now about how it was in the 90s is that there's actually a great deal of evidence to back up a lot of the things that we were saying back then even though you know we were able to make observations in clinic and you know many practitioners were reporting certain outcomes that they were getting from different dietary interventions now we have a much stronger evidence base in which to actually back up that kind of information you know with with some of the large studies that we've had like the ndns and nhanes and those kind of things yes. we've got a really really good picture of what's going on now so i think that's one of the big changes Yes, and just for listeners, the NDNS is the National Diet and Nutrition Survey um, run by government in the UK, um, and I'll link to that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Just to touch on what you were saying before, when you when you tried a plethora of, of different drugs for mm. your skin, mm. for your skin conditions. When I was growing up, I had skin conditions, a lot of my friends did, and we were trying different pharmaceuticals such as Accutane, which is a very, very strong... Ooh, that's the top end of the scale, that is. Yes, yes it is. But what was amazing, one of my friends, he was taking Accutane, and it it didn't work entirely. Like he still had very mild acne after taking it. Mm. But once he cut out dairy, he seemed to have a complete reduction in inflammation in his skin. There was less redness and much less spots. It was just incredible that that change, that one little change um, that made such a huge difference. What was it in particular when you um, changed your diet that made the biggest difference to your skin health? Oh wowzer! Um, whew, that's 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 quite a huge one. But to be fair, I did actually. I, I I'm one of the uh, minority that can make the drastic shift and change everything overnight. Before I changed my diet, my diet was basically like cheeseburgers and dirty pizzas and <laughs> weird concoctions that i used to make in the microwave with baked beans grated cheese weird spices and anything else i could throw together honestly when i look back at it now it, it makes my stomach churn but <laughs> i had a i had a really bad diet i used to smoke like a chimney as well i really wasn't particularly health focused and it was only when i got to sort of desperation stations that i i decided to sort my life out so i went from that to a vegan <laughs> diet i'm not a vegan now by the way wow. at all but um, i was vegan for 20 years and went over to this vegan diet and th there were just multiple changes so i think to be fair just the sheer amount of nutrient dense foods that i had going in changed so many aspects of my health so many aspects of my physiology that i couldn't put it down to one single thing because there's so there were so many variables there that i'd just be clutching at straws but it was the dietary shift overall right okay so was I, it, I actually looked like a different person. That was a weird thing. I looked like a different person. I compare myself to, to, to back then, and I just don't even look like the same person at all. It's very bizarre. 
And also, bull is a coupe. I mean, that's a start. It's it's quite peculiar how much change there was. Yeah, because a lot of people just see not just in weight, but the the skin tone changes, the the Mm. brightness of the the, their eyes changes, how white the eyes are. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. So, was it when you discovered the benefits of a healthy diet that you found an interest in cooking? Um, no, I've cooked for a while. I've, I've always been what I would call an enthusiastic eater, <laughs> right? Uh, otherwise known as a gannet. So I've always, <laughs> uh, I've always enjoyed eating and always enjoyed good food. Even when I was really, really young, I didn't like bland stuff. I didn't just like kind of steamed veg and a little bit of overcooked meat. I would always like things with different, like complex flavor profiles and sauces and textures. And so I was, I was a right little gourmet, even when, <laughs> when I was, even when I was a little kid. But it yep. wasn't always the the healthiest stuff. And from the age of about four or five, as soon as me and my sister were old enough to like know what a saucepan was, my mum would get us in the kitchen, helping her to prepare the family meals, bake, all sorts of different things. So we've always cooked. So it's never been this kind of big mystery. And it's something that I just always had a flair for. I've never been to any kind of catering college or school in my life. All of my formal training has been in nutrition, but I've done every job in the kitchen, in commercial kitchens. So like when I left school, I went straight into working in kitchens from pot wash right up to head chef. I've done everything in between. I've done wow. front, of house, front of house as well. So I learned a lot of that on, on the job. But all like I say, all of my formal training has been in nutritional science. You've come at it from a completely different angle than I think than most people. Now, you said you were a vegan for 20 years. Now, I know there are several vitamins and minerals such as B12, iron, zinc, and choline, for example, which can be particularly difficult to consume in adequate quantities when on a vegan diet. Mm. What health effects did you see when you were a vegan? None immediately. That's the weird thing. Because bearing in mind with things like B12, you have a, a vitamin B12 pool in the liver, and it can take up to six years for that to start to to degrade to a significant level. So, B12 is one of those ones that has the sneak attack approach. It takes a long time. So if you can kind of go along thinking you're you're doing absolutely fine, and then you know a good few years down the line it will bite you. But after 20 years, when I actually made the change, I just started, all of a sudden started putting on weight. I started feeling fatigued all the time, joint pain. Everything was just shot to pieces. And I had some blood work done. My CRP was through the roof, C-reactive, wow. pro, C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation, like total inflammatory load. My um, omega-3 to omega-6 ratios were absolutely appalling, uh, multiple deficiencies. My glucose tolerance was just non-existent. It just shot to pieces. Bear in mind, this was 20 years on a whole foods diet. I mean, there was no, there was no like you know chip butties or any rubbish like that it was you know brown rice and quinoa and vegetables and hummus and and pulses and all that kind of stuff i was doing the right things i i had the the knowledge to back it up but i just suddenly got to a point where it just didn't suit me and for the first time in like 20 years i started getting the most uncontrollable cravings for meat wow which is really bizarre because it never happened before so how how did you break that what was the, the first meal that you had from being a vegan to not steak and greens right steak and greens okay. steak and greens so like um a really good sirloin steak which is actually what i'm having for dinner tonight get in a nice <laughs> sirloin steak with cavalo- garlicky cavalo nero and i went into orbit i honestly felt like you know i felt like i'd 
just plug myself into the national grid. And now, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 41 years old and I'm like the Energizer bunny all the time. And I'm, I follow a, you know, a kind of diet that, that back in those days I would have thought was the work of the devil. I follow a very high-fat diet, uh, very little in the way of um, concentrated carbohydrates, non-starchy vegetables are my main carbohydrate source. I'm probably not as far as a keto, but I'm on a very, very low-carb diet. And honestly, I just go and go and go and go and feel wonderful it's very very bizarre how uh, how much of a difference there was and how quickly that's so interesting because i know vegan diets are advocated by many but seem to predominantly rely on carbohydrates as its main macronutrient yeah. yet there is now a growing body of evidence around the health effects of a low carbohydrate higher fat diet as mm-hmm. it pertains to cardiovascular risk improving conditions conditions such as type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. what is your take on this is uh, a low carb diet beneficial for everyone or well, I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think saying is X, Y, Z diet beneficial for everyone. I think anyone that says that um, needs to be ignored because you, you and I both know, having studied this subject, how much dichotomy and contradiction there is. I mean, nutrition is one of those things where, well, this is the case apart from when it isn't. That's kind yes. of the, yeah. the only way to explain it to people. It's just like, yeah, that's that's the case. Sometimes, then other times it isn't. But I would say gen- generally, there, you know, there's there's massive justification for how this kind of diet can improve those two conditions. So, I mean, if you want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, we can do. So, using let's let's right let's put the whole thing into context really what it has the biggest impact on is what that that cluster of issues that we would call metabolic syndrome where you see increased cardiovascular disease risk risk factors and markers uh, reduced glucose tolerance and centralized obesity you kind of put that triad of things together and it's what we would now call metabolic syndrome and it's all driven by the same thing which is blood sugar management and insulin function and insulin sensitivity so yes when when we a when we eat, like any foods, but particularly carbohydrate foods, our blood sugar starts to rise. Our body responds to the rise in blood sugar by releasing the hormone insulin. Insulin binds to an insulin receptor on our cells, opens a little doorway on the cell, allows the cell to take up the sugar to use as the substrate to make ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is what our cells run on. And blood sugar goes back down to normal levels. Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt. Everything's good. Now, yeah. this is what happens like in, in a normal, healthy situation. To and fro, it's like that constant dance all day long. Absolutely fine. But there's the, foods will raise blood sugar to a, a different rate and to a different extent. Some will just cause a gradual rise. Others will absolutely carpet bomb it. And one of the problems that we have in this part of the world is that because of the skew in macronutrient composition, we're eating way too many of the foods that carpet bomb blood sugar. And what starts to happen then is, okay, blood sugar goes up, but it goes up really, really high and really, really aggressively. And that that same process kicks in. The insulin's released glucose transporter on the cell surface opens the the glucose goes in but our cells do have a cutoff point they get full because too much glucose in a cell at any one time can cause 
oxidative stress. So once the cell realizes that it's actually at that satiety point, it shuts the glucose transporter and it doesn't let anything else in. Now, if blood sugar is still high when this happens, obviously blood sugar that's too high or too low is potentially life-threatening. So our body has many homeostatic mechanisms that can actually kick into action to rectify the situation. So if the cells are full, the next method that's employed is that a little bit will actually be stored as glycogen. And glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrate that stores in skeletal muscle and in the liver. Once the glycogen tank is full, if you like, then if blood sugar is still high, that excess will get sent to the liver. And when it goes to the liver, it gets converted into something called triacylglycerol, otherwise known as triglycerides. Yes. Triglycerides are basically a fatty substance that is a storage form of energy. And it gets stored in our adipose tissue so it goes straight to the fat cells but it gets there via the circulatory system so these fats in circulation are very susceptible to oxidation and that oxidation can cause inflammatory damage to the endothelium which is the skin that lines the inside of our blood vessels and when that happens that can kick start the whole chain of events that in essence will lead to atheroma formation but then also when triglycerides go up, our um, cholesterol levels start to change. We start to get an increase in LDL cholesterol and a decrease in HDL. Now, this was once seen as being like the ultimate decider as to what your cardiovascular disease risk is. You know, if you've got high LDL and low HDL, then that means you're at greater risk of cardiovascular disease. But it isn't quite that simple. It's all to do with particle size now. And Just interrupt you there, Dale. So for the listeners, LDL cholesterol is commonly referred to in conventional medicine or literature as the bad cholesterol and HDL as the good cholesterol. Yeah, and it's weird because like it's only one substance. Cholesterol yes. is cholesterol. But I like to use the analogy of bus routes. One bus, you know, one bus co like comes from the town centre and takes people into the surrounding villages, and the other bus route picks people up from the surrounding village bring, and brings them back into town. And that's, that's what a you great can way of putting look it. at this. Yeah, yeah. So, so H. LDL will bind to cholesterol and take it out to the peripheries of the body because it's an important substance. It mm -hmm. needs to be carried around everywhere. And HDL will pick it up and bring it back to the liver for, for breakdown and recycling. But a lot of it's got to do with particle size. So with LDL, you could have a raised raised LDL and the particle size be very, very large and buoyant and just kind of drift past like clouds and don't cause any significant damage to cardiovascular health whatsoever. But then you can also get LDL particles that are what we call small and dense. And these are actually highly atherogenic, meaning they can burrow into the endothelium and cause plaque formation. Raised blood sugar and raised insulin will cause an increased expression of small dense LDL. So already we've seen that potentially we're going to put on weight because we're producing more of this storage form, the the, uh, the triglycerides that's going to go to the adipose tissue. We're increasing our risk of cardiovascular disease because the, the blood fats are starting to change and also the triglycerides that are in circulation are at increased um, risk of oxidation, which can cause localized damage. So you've got two of those things already affected. Now, the third part of this story is if this is carrying on, if we're doing this on a, an ongoing basis, then yes, we're going to carry on putting weight. Yes, we're going to carry on putting our cardiovascular system at risk. But then we've got the third part of this gruesome picture, which is after a while, our insulin receptors start to smell a rat because if blood sugar is constantly up, our body's constantly pumping out insulin. And at first, the, the insulin receptors will listen to that signal and carry out the normal functions. But it gets to the point where 
it's almost like the boy that cried wolf. After a while, the the insulin receptor is kind of like, you know what, this ain't right. There shouldn't be this much sugar going on. I think insulin's lost the plot a little bit, so I'm just not going to pay attention to what he's telling me. It starts to become what we would call insulin resistant. Our actual tolerance to uh, to insulin and for it to work properly is affected. And then our initial response to that is the, the the beta cells in the pancreas will pump out a little bit more insulin. And for a little while, that will kind of work. And then it will just downregulate again. That, that receptor will downregulate its function. And then at this point, we we are what is, is referred to as pre-diabetic. But then that's the tipping point because if insulin sensitivity is reduced then blood sugar is even more poorly managed and all these other things that we've discussed before increase but then we start to move into a state of glucotoxicity and the excess sugar can start to damage the pancreas and start to damage the beta cells and that is when we move into the state of type 2 diabetes you bring these three things together and we're looking at total metabolic damage and what does this actually translate to in terms of diet well it's the it's not about demonizing individual foods it's the patterns of consumption that are the issue basically it's the kind of foods that have got very little fiber in them very very refined carbohydrate sources that release their energy very very quickly so let's look at this as a pattern this is this isn't particularly unusual for this for this country either say people might have cereal on a slice of toast for breakfast they might have a um, couple of biscuits with tea as a, as a mid-morning snack. They yes. might have a, a sandwich and a packet of crisps for lunch. They might have, you know, pasta or mashed potatoes or whatever in the evening. None of those foods, you know, I don't want to stick the bad tag on anything because it's not about that. But that pattern of consumption, when you're eating that many refined carbohydrates in a day, that's when you're pushing blood sugar up consistently to unmanageable levels. And that's when, when you're doing this day in, day out, that you're starting to break down all of these control mechanisms over time. And the simple act of just reining in your carbohydrate intake, like really bringing it down and then adding more protein and fats to to meals that slow gastric emptying and and slow down the release of sugars and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can shift the balance. I've seen this in clinical practice. Uh, My friend Rongan Chatterjee has demonstrated it on his TV show that you can reverse diabetes with this kind of approach. There's, thousands and thousands of documented clinical episodes of this taking place so just by that little bit of dietary manipulation providing there's no secondary complications because someone that's had type 2 diabetes for a long time can be at risk of you know neurological damage and very very advanced cardiovascular disease but providing there's no secondary complications really diet as an intervention is probably the most relevant that was beautifully put. Thank you so much for that. And I think um, that idea of the, how did you phrase it? Pattern, pattern of consumption. I've not yes. heard it phrased like that before because these individual foods, they're not necessarily poisonous or, or no. bad for you. Everyone can have a little bit of chocolate, but it's the dose yeah. that makes the poison. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I love a packet of salt and vinegar crisps now and again. I mean, like it's, it's rare, but... I like it. I enjoy it. But if you, you know, if you're eating three packets a day and like all these other refined carbs, then 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 these the the net effect starts to accumulate, and that's that's the issue. And it's that that consumption pattern, and the and the macronutrient composition of our modern diet that is one of the big things responsible for a lot of the degenerative disease that we see, the dietary related degenerative disease, anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
there are several essential fatty acids, omega-3, 6, and 9 in the diet, and you've mentioned about them numerous times before in your books. Mm -hmm. And you're a big advocate of ensuring adequate intake of omega-3s uh, from like sources like cold water fish, mm -hmm. um, and also improving the omega-3 to 6 ratio. Yes. Can you explain to listeners why this is important and what they can do to manage it? Right. Okay. Well, the essential fatty acids generally play two main roles in the body. They they either end up forming structural compounds or communication compounds. They're they're you know fatty. They're vitamin-like substances derived from fats. Now, out of all of the ones that you mentioned, there's only two that are essential, and that's three and six. Nine can actually be manufactured out of six and flipped over quite easily. But um, the two that are absolutely essential are three and six. Now, as they're essential, both of them need to come from our diet every single day. But what we do know, like just judging by their, their normal behavior in how they're metabolized, is that our requirement for each is drastically different now omega-6 has absolutely vital roles to play um on, let's backtrack a little bit right i just need to backtrack a little bit um just to put this into context a little bit better so i said that they can either play a structural or a communication role yes and the, the main influence on disease is looking at them in their role as things that can influence communication one of the metabolic end products of um, fatty acid metabolism is a group of compounds called prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins can regulate several responses, but the, the main things that they regulate are pain signaling and the inflammatory response. We've got three types of prostaglandin, a series one, series two, and series three. Series one and series three reduce inflammation. They turn it off and downregulate it. Series three does that aggressively so. Whereas the series two prostaglandin, this actually... Puts, the, puts its foot on the accelerator. This really ramps up inflammation and really exacerbates it. Now, different fatty acids are metabolized to form different prostaglandins. So let's get back to our omega-6 omega and omega-3. Omega-6, we need it in very, very small amounts. In those small amounts, it has vital roles to play for the brain and nervous system and also hormonal regulation, particularly in women as well. We need to take it in every single day. But once we take in the small amount that we need, any excess, because the pathway that metabolizes it to put it to all the good usages gets very quickly saturated, if that pathway is saturated and additional omega-6 is coming into the diet, then it gets shut down a different pathway. It gets, it gets rapidly converted into something which is called arachidonic acid or sometimes labeled AA. And then arachidonic acid feeds directly into the metabolic pathway that actually creates the series two prostaglandins. Now, remember, these are the ones that exacerbate inflammation. They turn yes. inflammation on. And what's happened in this country over the last 40 years when we've had all these public health campaigns that have encouraged us to kind of move away from saturated fat because saturated fat's obviously going to kill you. you know <laughs> I mean, it's the, food, it's the food of the devil. Avoid it at all costs. In that messaging, we were then told to move over to these quote-unquote heart-healthy vegetable oils, you know, your sunflower oil and margarine and all that abomination. Yes. And what these oils are is essentially concentrated sources of omega-6. So on average, we're consuming up to 23 times more omega-6 fatty acids per day than we actually need because we've swapped a lot of the wholesome saturated fats for these these supposedly healthier fat sources and what that what does that do well it drives subclinical chronic 
inflammatory changes in tissue subclinical meaning that you know your ear doesn't suddenly swell up you would only become aware of it if you had a blood test and they notice things like raised c-reactive protein protein c-reactive <laughs> protein or erythrocyte sedimentation rate esr these are both markers of total inflammatory load yes and why does that matter well chronic inflammatory changes in tissues are a huge link to degenerative disease, cardiovascular disease. We know it is, in essence, an inflammatory condition. Earlier, I spoke about how oxidized lipids can actually create inflammatory episodes in the endothelium. If those inflammatory episodes are being ramped up, if that flame is being fanned by an increased PGE2, series 2 prostaglandin expression, then it's just going to kind of snowball very, very quickly. Also, and and this isn't a sensationalist claim, people can find this in any A-level pathology textbook. Prolonged inflammation in tissues can cause genetic change in time to the point where it can affect genes that regulate cell replication. It is a major link in cancer instigation. That is pathology 101 okay so that's not just some kind of random weird dietary claim we know that prolonged inflammation is one of the main triggers for tumor cell activity okay so this is a really serious and really significant thing that we're in this state where we're taking in far too much omega-6 now let's get on to omega-3 Omega-3 is, is literally like the mirror image of this. Our requirements are much higher because it has um, a much more diverse range of activities. But when we get the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, the type that we get from oily fish, so EPA and DHA, icosapentaenoic acid, docosahexaenoic acid, those two, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, these can really help to buffer inflammation. The, the, the first, DHA, DHA can feed into the pathway that creates the series one prostaglandin, <coughs> excuse me. And also there's a secondary group of compounds called delta resolvins that uh, can arise from the metabolism of DHA. And then EPA, the icosapentaenoic acid, this is the absolute anti-inflammatory hero. This feeds in to the PGE3 pathway, the pathway that creates the series three prostaglandin. These are the ones that go in and absolutely kick butt. They can knock inflammation out very, very quickly. So the simple act of reducing our intake of omega-6, which we do by getting those. Now, listen, anyone listening, I want you to do something. I want you to press, after I finish saying this, press pause and go and do this straight away, right? If you've got margarine in the fridge, if you've got sunflower oil or corn oil or soy oil or any of those kind of things in the cupboard, I want you to get all of those foods. I want you to get a great big black bag, throw them in there, chuck them out and never go near them again because they're pure omega-6. So cutting those things out of your diet and then increasing your omega-3, you can start to really skew things in your favor. You're essentially force feeding these metabolic pathways to produce more of the anti-inflammatory variety of prostaglandins. I think it's such an important health message because not many people are aware of this and it's such a simple change which people can do as you've said with that with uh, getting people to throw out everything high in omega-6 for, for their long-term health as well people can just it's shift profound. it overnight yeah. yes so i mean that's why i mean one of the questions that i was always get asked and i bet you get asked this as well is like okay so with all of this kind of contradictory information what is the ideal diet what should we be doing obviously you and i both know that really we haven't got a clue <laughs> 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 We're acutely a, aware of that. I yeah, think. We, we haven't got a didgeridoo. But 
the one thing that we do know is how our modern way of eating is killing us and that some of those things that we've I've just talked about is is um, illustrative of that so I will say to people look if you focus on three three areas then you're probably and let's underline the word probably you're probably hedging your bets in the right direction those three things are blood sugar balance fatty acid balance and nutrient density that's what my book the power of three was all about yes. we've spoken we've just spoke about the first two managing blood sugar because of that influence on metabolic health balancing fatty acids because of that influence on um, low-grade chronic inflammation those two things alone can massively impact the biggest areas of burden on our health system what is our health system struggling the most with obesity type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease yeah absolutely. yeah those are, the, those are the biggest areas and those two dietary interventions sure they're not going to get rid of all of it and that's not what we're saying it's not like that it's like the absolute blanket cure-all but what is a certainty is that by making those changes we're going to drastically drastically reduce our risk of developing those kinds of conditions and then we move over over to the third one which is micronutrient density we're pretty much the ping and ding generation where a lot of people are living on convenience food ready meals this isn't finger wagging this isn't judgment this is just fact okay this is not yes. i'm not trying to like belittle anyone or say well you should know better because that's that's not not what it's about it's just we've we've ended up in this situation for whatever reason so i always encourage people like you know if you need convenience cool fine that's fine you, you, you carry on but try and add a little bit of fresh stuff as well you know just try and maybe create a dense um multi-colored side salad with as many different colors in as possible or snack on some fresh fruit or raw vegetables between meals whatever because in this fresh stuff comes the micronutrients the vitamins minerals trace elements what do these do well i mean they do a thousand and one different things in the body for each different nutrient but you could always put them into this one category they're biochemical facilitators they either make something happen or they make something that makes something happen. That's what they do. And if you get any kind of any kind of deficiency in these types of micronutrients, the implications for both short and long-term health can be profound. So three simple steps. Three simple steps that are bring your carbohydrate intake in check and learn how to build a diet that's low glycemic, i.e. very, very fiber dense carbohydrates if you consume any and keep them keep them to a minimum good quality proteins fats non-starchy vegetables that's keeping your blood sugar in check the fats that you use keep away from the seed derived oils sunflower oil margarine all of that kind of stuff and just flip over to something like butter and a little bit of olive oil and then make sure you get as much fresh stuff in as possible. Those three things that are really easy to action can have a massive long-term protective effect fantastic those are three takeaways straight away i think i, I normally wait until the uh to the last question to let <laughs> listeners have them but there you go really. <laughs> no, yeah. absolutely fine oh, no, i've skewed it for you <laughs> no problem at all dale i'm gonna play devil's advocate for just a minute here okay so nuts and seeds contain yep. larger large amounts of omega-6 yet yes. consistently they are negatively associated with cardiovascular diseases in epidemiological studies. And mm -hmm. for listeners, epidemiology is the study of incidence and distribution of diseases and conditions relating to certain dietary and lifestyle habits. It's not now, cause and effect. No, no, <laughs> it's not. I am now unsure whether consuming high amounts of omega-6 from whole foods is as detrimental as consuming it from 
yeah. refined oils, for example. Yeah, I, I, I would I, love I, to know your opinion. So, firstly, yes. I mean, if if you look at fatty composition, they are high in omega six. But are they high enough to skew the balance by just a a, a couple of handfuls of seeds? Is that going to actually deliver enough to massively skew? those metabolic pathways to the same extent that a refined oil made from those seeds would do you know the dosage range from a palm full of mixed seeds in relation to a couple of tablespoons of the oil is going to be massively different so that's the first point very often you'll you'll get that oil delivered with high amounts of vitamin e and selenium you know two yes. things that have major impact upon cardiovascular disease as well um then there's the fiber content and then also you've got cytosterols they all have a high cytosterol content cytosterols can actually bind to cholesterol within the digestive tract and carry it out via the bowel before it gets a chance to uh, to be absorbed now um, okay, I did not this is that. yeah this isn't dietary cholesterol you've got you've basically got like a a loop circulation of cholesterol you cholesterol is manufactured in the liver a certain percentage will go straight into circulation, but the highest percentage will then be used in bile acid formation for digestion. And the cholesterol goes along with the bile out into the digestive tract. And then once the, um, the, the activity of bile higher up in the, in the small intestine has actually, you know, once it's done its job and emulsified fats and all that kind of stuff, the cholesterol that was been manufactured then gets into the lower portion of the gut and gets reabsorbed back into circulation where it can start to be put to use for steroidal hormone manufacture, regulation of cell membrane function, that kind of stuff, and then eventually gets sent back to the liver for breakdown and recycling. You know, it will jump onto a lipoprotein at that point and all that kind of stuff. Yes. C cytosterols and soluble fiber as well can bind to cholesterol in the gut and stop it being reabsorbed that you know that enterohepatic circulation is interrupted and then what happens is the liver response because cholesterol is so vital for the digestive process it will actually mobilize a certain amount that's in circulation back to be used for these digestive processes mm -hmm. so it lowers serum cholesterol that's how these cholesterol lowering drinks work they've got cytosterols in them so you've you've got you've got a whole host of benefits associated with seeds that are just that is beyond just purely fatty acid profile. We have mentioned your herbal medicine degree at the start of this conversation, and mm. to some, this might seem an unusual topic of study. Now I know you mentioned it about the the phytochemicals. Now green tea, for example, has the antioxidant epigallocatechin three gallate (EGCG), yeah. which is strongly associated with anti-cancer properties. Hmm? Now you've written extensively on how to improve various chronic ailments in various different books. Yeah, is it possible to leverage plant chemicals in cooking to produce a therapeutic effect? Well, yeah, I mean you can certainly enhance dishes with key ingredients that may be rich in certain certain compounds. I tend to not do it in isolation. I tend to bring several factors together. But yes, <coughs> let's, usually you know, synergy let's, is creates yeah, a yeah. larger so, effect. So let's you know let's use let's carry on with the cardiovascular theme then, and let's kind yeah. of think of a, a little dish that we can make. So you could do a dish that has impact on cardiovascular disease that is like 
let's okay so let's say a breakfast a a good quality porridge with a blueberry and blackberry compote and then some ground seeds on top of it that's going to benefit cardiovascular health so we've already talked about seeds in the last thing where you know you've got the vitamin e and selenium and the cytosterols and all that kind of good stuff but to really get into the into the funky stuff with phytochemicals we need to look at the berries now the the color pigments in blueberries blackberries um red peppers red wine chocolate all these kind of things it's a group of compounds called flavonoids they tend to give deep red blue purple color pigments <coughs> now flavonoids have been very widely studied and here in the uk professor jeremy spencer at the university of reading has been doing some fantastic work with them and what we found is that flavonoids can actually get taken up by the endothelial cells so just to go back to the endothelium it is the skin that lines the inside of our blood vessels and it's not just 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 a physical barrier it's very metabolically active it regu regulates um, circulatory dynamics it regulates how blood vessels function when flavonoids get taken up by the endothelial cells they cause almost like a metabolic distress within that cell and that metabolic distress will cause the endothelial cell to start pumping out very high levels of a gas called nitric oxide. Now, this is something that endothelial cells do naturally, but the metabolic distress caused by flavonoid uptake causes this to happen much more aggressively. And what nitric oxide does, when it, leads, when it leaves the endothelial cell, it then moves into the smooth muscle wall of the vessel. And it causes the smooth muscle fibers to relax. As those fibers relax, the vessel dilates. As the vessel dilates, simple physics kicks in. You know, we've not changed the uh, volume of the liquid that's in there. You know, the blood volume stays the same. But mm -hmm. because we've increased the size of the vessel, the pressure within it drops. The pressure against right. the wall drops. So it can transiently lower blood pressure. And Professor Spencer and his team, they've actually used, um, <coughs> excuse me, actually used brachial ultrasound on ultrasound on the brachial artery to measure flow mediated dilatation which is like how responsive the vessel is to, to you know um changes in flow and how blood pressure will change according to that and what they've shown is that literally as dosage of flavonoids goes up vasodilation increases so this and you know the, the responding decrease in blood pressure occurs now it ain't replacing drugs anytime soon but it's just an example of how one particular compound can start to benefit but then bringing these dishes together so we've we've looked at the seeds that have got you know xyz benefits we've looked at the berries that can influence blood pressure also flavonoids can help to make the um make the endothelium a little bit more resilient to damage and and, and protect it a little bit from from metabolic distress and you know the kind of damage that would arise from the lipid oxidation that we spoke about earlier yes. yeah now that's two of the ingredients in there. It was porridge, so we've got those amazing oats. Oats have a lot of soluble fiber, in particularly one called beta-glucan. And beta-glucan, I mean, you know, it's got all sorts of weird and wonderful effects on, on immunity, but in the context of cardiovascular health, it can bind to cholesterol in the gut and carry it out via the bowel. So those three ingredients, you're hitting the different aspects of um, cardiovascular pathology in different ways.
you know this isn't saying you, know, you just have this dish and all of a sudden cured it's like <laughs> build, you know build your diet and lifestyle around this knowledge learn what things can influence your body in different ways and you have certain health concerns learn how the food that you eat fits into that then you learn how to tailor your diet according to your own particular needs mm-hmm. and you can start to really benefit your long-term health yeah and i think it really empowers individuals to take control of their health when they know that the simple foods like this can have such a profound effect on certain ailments um, I've, i know some uh, research from king's college london they did uh, some some research on blueberry extract and flow mediated mm. dilatation as well and found it to be efficacious at yeah. reducing blood pressure so yeah, there's numerous different foods from these phytochemicals, flavonoids, anthocyanins, and those kind of dark fruits. Um, yeah, vastly important. I just wanted to touch on chefs have been called the original nutritionists. Now, I'm of the opinion that if you don't know how to prepare food, then many people will struggle to eat healthy food. And your books are a great resource in this regard. From your experience, have you seen that teaching people how to cook is the tool that improves dietary habits the most? Um, I think think demystifying it is probably the biggest thing that I I see that makes changing people. Um, I don't necessarily sit there and teach people how to kind of create some kind of cordon bleu masterpiece. No. Okay. Really, it's it's just showing them how simple it can be, and <clears throat> very often, I mean, to um, to quote the great Tony Robbins, the enemy of execution is complexity. Okay. Yes. If you if things are too complicated for people, they ain't gonna do it. It doesn't matter how much they get the idea behind it. It doesn't matter how much they get the science that's there. Yes. If it's too complicated, it's just not going to happen. I mean, like we've all got ridiculous demands on our time. We're all living a, a, a life that is completely and utterly insane. So we need we need simplicity in our life. And I've got no problem with simplicity. I'd like to streamline things as much as I can so I can achieve more. That's just, you know, I think that's a good idea right across the board. So I show people that it doesn't have to be complicated because when you first start speaking to people about eating healthier, and this is something that we really saw with Eat Shop Save as well, is that... But first, people think that it's going to be super difficult. Oh, I'm going to be spending hours in the kitchen. Oh, I'm going to be spending loads of money. Oh, I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to just eat rabbit food, and it's going to be really, really boring and bland. Blah blah blah. We hear the same lines over and over again. Yes. And I've got an answer for every single one. <laughs> I actually, you know, I I don't let any of these hurdles get in the way. So it's like, okay, we're going to make an incredibly nutrient dense one pot dish that costs you less for a pound, a pound to, to feed four of you. And it's, you know, it's all going to be done in one pot. You can start it off and then you can crack on and do something else for an hour and just come back and stir it a couple of times. It's really easy. It doesn't matter if you can't boil an egg, I'll get you cooking this dish by the end of it. When you come at it from that point of view and show people that, it absolutely you can make it complicated. Do you know what I mean, if I'm doing a dinner party for someone, then I'll make all kind of crazy purees and marinades and, yeah. and, and and go nuts. That's not reflective of what I do every day. That's not that's not no, my nine, for every that, meal. Yeah, yeah, that's not my that's not my Monday to Friday diet. That's for sure. But you can you can still follow sound nutritional principles and keep it simple. So that's always been the biggest thing for me. It's breaking down the 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 barriers and the resistance rather than teaching to cook per se. It's de- mystifying how simple 
it is to actually start to to make better food choices yeah and you touched on such a key point there like people go on these diets and you know by their very own nature they're short term rather than because they try and do too many things at once rather than just slow like one step changes over time which will naturally change or which will change your lifestyle for the better and that could take a year it could take a month it doesn't matter but the idea is you're looking at a long-term goal not a short-term exactly i'd say i have i have a phrase that i use with a lot of my clients and it's just change one thing yes Change one thing. It's you know I I am in that kind of you know sort of point three percent of weirdos that can actually change everything overnight like I did. But you know that's more the fact that I'm a freak of nature rather than a representative of 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 most people. And I think for a lot of people when they try and do that, it's great for a couple of weeks. Then the frustration kicks in. Then the the different barriers start to rear their ugly heads. But if you change one thing. If it could be as simple as right, okay, for every meal I'm gonna have something fresh. So I'm gonna have like a load of fresh fruit and berries on my in my breakfast, and I'm gonna have a good side salad with my lunch and some freshly cooked vegetables with my dinner. I'm gonna eat something fresh at every single meal. That could be your first change. And you do that over and over again. You repeat it, you repeat it until it becomes habit, until it becomes the norm. As soon as that habit is cemented, it's in there, done. Then you add the next thing. It's like, right, what can I do next? What improvement can I make next? Over and over and over again. And whilst this might, from you know the outside, look like baby steps, you see where you are in six to 12 months. You've completely overhauled your lifestyle and you've done it in a way that is achievable, that's manageable, that's pleasurable. Yes, and you know you've just eased yourself into it, and you've actually created real change rather than some placed some ridiculous dogma on yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you've you've reduced that stress of changing everything at once. Yeah, yeah. Wait, it's not like we need any more stress in this day and age, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just wanted to touch upon one more thing, and it's it's this is purely for my own interest here. So sorry, everyone else. It is commonly said that if you have a nutritious and balanced diet, then you don't need to take supplements, for mm-hmm. example. What supplements do you personally take? Because I know you take some from previous interviews. Yeah. Um, and why? Uh, omega-3. I always take omega-3 just to ensure that I can tip the scale in my favor in terms of uh, prostaglandin expression. And then, to be fair, my I've got a, one cupboard in my kitchen that just looks like a chemist. I've got so many, so many different supplements in there, and sometimes I'll just dip into them as and when I need them. So after this, I'm going to go down and take a little bit of vitamin C because I can feel my throat going a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I might take a little bit of extra zinc and B vitamins if I've you know pulled quite a few late ones. You know, sometimes, especially when you've got writing deadlines and things, you can sometimes find yourself you know, staring at a computer screen for 18 hours of the day and you, you can burn yourself out a little bit. So then I might take the additional bits and zinc. Um, I do think it's a good idea to take a daily multi. Just, I mean, that, that whole thing of, I've always got a response. When someone says, oh, with a balanced diet, you can get, you can get everything you need. Firstly, I've been, I've been in the nutrition industry for 25 years. I haven't got a Scooby-Doo what a balanced diet is. It's a lovely idea, like Father Christmas and the Easter Bunny. Yeah, they're beautiful ideas, but <laughs> the day ain't real. Neither is a balanced diet because the whole, you know, the whole thing of gene environment interactions and you know, genetic influences and lifestyle influences on nutritional requirement make that argument completely nonsensical for, to, yeah. to start with. Yeah, but requirements then also, change all the time. Yeah, completely. 
but then the other thing is most of this idea of you can get everything from the food that you eat comes from a body of work by McCants and Widowson called the the, the uh, what is it the um, the components of food or the the, 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 you know the one that that utterly dull tome that's like three hundred yes. yeah three hundred grams of broccoli has X amount of vitamin <laughs> C and, da, 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 da. and my question my answer yeah you know, my my response to that is how do you know yeah right. let's say this this amount of of broccoli contains this amount of vitamin C how do you know how was it how grown? do you know so yeah. was it grown in yeah the sam- the samples that you used at that time which by the way was kind of like I think it was like the forties or fifties had that much but. You could have some broccoli that's grown on your own allotment that you harvested 20 minutes ago and you lightly steamed it. Or you could have some that you bought from the supermarket that was grown six months ago in Uruguay and then you've taken it home and you've boiled it into Macintosh. It really, really, (laughs) there's so much variation that you can't make ridiculous blanket statements like that. Sure, you know that you get in some of the key compounds and like, you know, with the berries, is it still blue? Yeah, it's got flavonoids in it. We know that they're there and they're doing something, but we couldn't say exactly how much is in there. When you take a daily multi, you're just ensuring you're getting all of your micronutrients in that you need every single day. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science. It's not taking mega doses of anything. I don't really support mega doses of things, but just, you know, the set, the, the sensible little bit of insurance is great. Now I often get asked which omega three supplements to take as people are worried about if they're potentially consuming rancid fish oils. What are the key things to look out for when you're choosing an omega three supplement? You know what? It's just about quality, to be honest. I I wouldn't I wouldn't get just fish oil. I would get one that is actually the refined omega three taken from the the fish oil. So right. when you when you look at it, you you want to say you want it to say omega three x y z milligrams rather than fish oil giving x y z milligrams of omega three. Because yes. when it's when it's the whole fish oil, that's when you've potentially got rancidity issues. But if it's just EPA and DHA, and I would say you're looking for around about 750 milligrams of EPA, 250 of DHA per capsule, that is your ideal kind of area, then, yeah, that's what you need to be looking for. I do say it has to come from fish. Now, this one thing we have to we have to cover this. We have to put this thing to bed. <laughs> I know that there'll be like a couple of vegans that are like, well, I'm don't want to go near uh, animal produce. Can't I just eat flax and chia? Mm. Ah! Right. Like you hear this so often. So often hear people say, oh, you don't have to eat fish. You can get all the omega-3 that you need from plant sources. Uh, no. Omega-3 isn't just one substance. It's a whole family of different fatty acids. We've spoken about the long chain ones that feed directly into metabolic pathways within the human body which are the epa and dha the long yes. chain varieties. but then we also have another one called ala alpha linoleic acid yeah yeah and ala is the plant form of omega-3 now this is abundant in flax seeds and chia seeds but it has to go through significant enzymatic conversion it has to go through the desaturases and elongases it has to have additional double bonds placed in the molecule it needs to be stretched out you know desaturases having double bonds put in it elongases elongating the molecule now <clears throat> in human beings on average we do around about a four to six percent conversion of all dietary ala into epa and a shocking 0.3 to 0.6 percent conversion of ala into dha so you could be eating the diet of a canary you could be eating seeds all day long and you will not be 
replete in omega-3 fatty acids. They'll give you loads of other health benefits. There's loads of other good stuff in there, absolutely. But if you're relying on them for your omega-3, it ain't going to happen. Now, for vegans, what you've got is an ingenious, ingenious supplement that came to market a few years ago. For a long time, we've had DHA that's taken from algae. The DHA has been there for a long time, but one of the missing links in the vegan diet has always been EPA. EPA has always been that Achilles heel, but now they've found a way to actually produce epa from algae as well so vegans can now get an epa and dha supplement made purely from algae and you actually bypass all of those um poorly functioning metabolic pathways and you're feeding those long chain fatty acids into your body in the same way as if you were taking fish oil but you're getting the plant source that is great to know especially because i know someone who's allergic to fish i'm going to get him straight on that yeah, it's easy. I mean, um, yeah, Viridian do one, Biocare do one. There's like, there's quite a few companies out there that, that have got hold of it now. It's, uh, it's, it's no longer. It takes the guesswork out. Do you know what I mean, and, and it, as we said before, keep it simple. Don't make it hard for yourself. I know we're coming up on time. There's just three more topics which I touch upon with everyone. Do you think healthcare in general should be more integrated? And how do you think we go about doing this? Uh, yes, I do. And I was lucky enough. I mean, this was actually back in the early noughties, actually. This was around about 2004. I worked at a place called the Integrated Medical Centre, which was set up by Dr. Mozaraf Ali down Harley Street, New Cavendish Street kind of way. Yes. And they, they used to run the gatekeeper system. So people would come to the practice and they would see a GP. And the GP would be aware of all the other therapies on offer within the practice and have like this, you know, integrated model with the other practitioners. They would assess the patient. They'd be like, okay, so I wanted to see the nutritionist about this. But then, you know, you told me you've got some some like postural stuff going on so maybe go and see the osteopath to see if they can help you out with this you know you're a little bit stressed out go and see our masseur to get a little bit of massage and help you to chill out a little bit they build this treatment protocol yes. with all of the different kind of therapies that are available obviously you know that's private practice and that's a, a very very different model how we would actually kind of translate anything like that into the national health service i think that's probably just um uh, a pipe dream possibly because it's it's such a, a massively overburdened system anyway mm -hmm. i mean i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm getting first-hand experience at the minute of how um intense things can get with um with the nhs you know you know seeing someone go through something and um i don't know how we'd realistically be able to bring that model into uh, the health service certainly within clinical practice within private practice you have all of those opportunities to do that <clears throat> you know it is working for the greater good of the patient it is looking at every aspect of what's going on we are you know we're multi-dimensional beings and i don't want to start getting all kind of um esoteric or weird because you know that's just not me anyway but yes. you know okay. obviously obviously we have we have the physical but we have the mental we have the you know the mental and the emotional and we have the spiritual as well those are the integrated parts of the human existence and all of those have to be looked at. I know nothing about psychology. I'm no spiritual guru either. I can take care of the nutritional bit, but then kind of pass them on to someone else that can help them in those other ways. And that just seems logical to me for us as practitioners of different modalities and understanding different aspects of the human condition to come together for the 
overall benefit of the the person that's presenting these things and you you know you know that someone presenting with something isn't just a walking symptom you know they're a being they're a being with so many different aspects influencing their their health on so many levels and all of those aspects need to be addressed if they're to return to true health sure we can yes. you know we can we can buffer symptoms there's nutritional interventions that will wipe someone's symptoms of certain things out you know with, with joint pain you can you like bang up omega-3 and things like that and you can reduce joint pain quite a lot it's not getting rid of the underlying stuff and you know there's pro- probably a lot more that you can do but you know we can just do symptom management but that's not actually making anyone better is it so <laughs> no i think you touched on a really good point there it's like looking at the whole person that holistic perspective and treating people holistically taking into account every kind of the the spiritual mental health physical health relationships everything like that R- rongan puts it really well in his book the four pillar plan yeah you know sleep exercise nutrition and stress and covering those four bases which i think could potentially be done in healthcare it just is the the way it's integrated right now I think it should be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the things that are burdening burdening the NHS are things that I think we can be taught about as individuals to take greater responsibility for. And I know that that is an unpopular idea. You know, you know, I'm all about this whole kind of like snowflake thing that's going on at the minute. People are so so quick to get like offended by things and say, "Oh, how dare you say that? I actually take responsibility for myself. I couldn't possibly do that." Come on, mm-hmm. we can actually engage in our own healthcare. If you're smoking 50 a day and then you go in to hospital because you've got something going on, you know, someone needs to have a chat with you. Someone needs to take you to one side and say, "Mate, what are you doing?" Yes. So sort yourself out. If we can educate people to give them the real information and the tools to manage some of these things themselves and start to take some of this this, this burden off of the health system, then maybe we stand a chance to actually build more integrated models. But at the minute, it's literally like groaning and spluttering under the weight of all of this. How do you see medicine evolving as new research in nutrition in this nutrition area emerges? Mm. I think we, I mean, already we're starting to see a little bit of a change. There's definitely going to be a greater shift towards um, lifestyle prescribing. Yes. You know, that's, that's, that's certainly a buzz term that, you know, that the likes of Rongan and Asim and Rupi and those kind of people are yeah. um, banding I'm, around. I'm and speaking it's... to uh, Rob Lawson next week, actually. So okay. he's the, the president of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Yeah, and it's it's really bizarre. When I when I did my um, my postgrad at Surrey, virtually every other student was a general practitioner. There was like the occasional gastroenterologist there, but you know I was I I was one of three non medics there, and that in itself was a massive eye opener. And every yeah. single one that I've spoken to, and you know I I communicate with with hundreds of doctors a year now and, and have amazing conversations. Back when I first got into it, you go and see a doctor and tell them that you you want to work with diet to do something, they would literally like frog march you out of their office, like they <laughs> ever ever darken my doorstep again. But now, it's um, it's a completely different conversation and. So many of them have come to the realization that in terms of the degenerative lifestyle related conditions like the type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, drug therapy is not winning the war. Emergency Mm -hmm. medicine, 
trust me, if I walk out of my house now and get hit by a bus, well, not a bus because I live in the middle of nowhere. So if I get hit by a tractor and um, the last thing I want to see is broccoli. Do you know what I mean? The last yes, thing I want to see is broccoli. Anyway, yeah. It's like, give me morphine and give it to me yesterday. <laughs> but, um, so in, in acute acute medicine, emergency medicine, it is miracle work. Yeah, pain medicine, still... antibiotics yeah. when they used well. Yeah, yes. life-saving, fantastic. Surgery, that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's, it's mind-bending how incredible this stuff is. But with the lifestyle-related issues, the, the stuff that essentially is due to our environment, then... We 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 ain't winning the war with drugs. We need to actually educate people as to how to take care of themselves. Now, unfortunately, the you know one of the big problems that people like you and I have is that we're always fighting against these sensationalist headlines and stuff like that. I people always say that there's a lot of contradiction, and I actually don't think there is. When we get back to actual evidence base, I think we've got quite a good picture of what what is kind of right and what isn't but because you you get a small study that's that's published that maybe is like you know been done by a uh, a master's student has got a cohort of about 12 plus yes. like the laboratory dog and you know is a very very small experimental setting and then one of the big national papers will get hold of it and it's like you know coffee now causes you to grow an extra head you know i mean so like you get the r- a ridiculous headline and it'll be like going straight back to the beginning again for people like us we have to go round and round and round these insane headlines re-educating people say no that's not true look at this look at the actual evidence you know like here's here's something that's got a cohort of like two hundred and fifty thousand over yes. a 12 year period you know maybe this has got slightly stronger statistical <laughs> significance than something that was done in somebody's shed you know, it's, <laughs> this is yeah. what we're all yeah, we're always up against this that's the thing it's like so that, that's 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 the only way that we're going to kind of start winning this battle is if we can actually consistently educate people as to how to look after themselves that can take some of the burden off of the health system definitely so i do think that the future of medicine is going to be lifestyle prescribing it's going to be a cookery class before a drug yes yes absolutely and just communicating those you know complex scientific terminologies and, and you know those headlines translating them into understandable language and you know telling people what it actually means yeah 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 just to drive it home, can you provide the listeners with uh, those three tips that you mentioned earlier? Oh, God, it took me about an hour to explain them before. <laughs> right. Um, what, so uh, this, what, uh, yeah, the feature-length podcast. Now, um, so three things. Like, I, I always get the question, what is the ideal diet? I haven't got a Scooby. Nobody knows. But what we do know is the ways in which our modern way of eating is killing us. If we do the opposite, we're probably hedging our bets. And that can be broken into three things. Blood sugar balance, fatty acid balance, and nutrient density. Blood sugar balance, eating a diet that's not going to push your blood sugar up too high for too long because that can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and centralized obesity and increased visceral fat. And that in terms of application is as simple as rain carbohydrate intake in. I ain't saying go and do Atkins. What I'm saying is don't build your diet around carbohydrates, build your diet around non-starchy vegetables, you know, or not even lean proteins, good quality proteins, healthy fats, any carbohydrates you do have reduce the portion size down to at least half of what you would normally have and then go for the multi-grain versions because they release their energy slower. So that's thing number one. The uh, tip number two, the fatty acid balance, any of these refined omega-6 laden oils, sunflower oil, soy oil, corn oil, 
Get him out. Yeah, get him out. Get him in the bin. <laughs> Load of rubbish. Kick him to the curb. Tell him to call Tyrone. Right, well, that's, um, that's what you need to do with those. Get rid of those and use olive oil, butter, or now and again a little bit of coconut oil. I mean, you know, I don't think it's this kind of panacea, I guess. Oh, God, the way yeah. some people go on it, like make you fly and walk on water. Get real. It's just, you know, it's just an oil. Um, those three as your primary sources of uh, cooking oil, and then up your intake of omega 3, whether that's by supplement, by eating more oily fish, or both. And then the final thing is micronutrient density. Micronutrients are the biochemical facilitators in the body. You don't get enough of those, you're in trouble. Simply increase your intake of fresh plant foods. That's it. It's not complicated. Throw a handful of mixed berries on your on your breakfast in the morning. I mean, even you know, even if you're having something, if you're having a savoury breakfast, if you like a cooked breakfast like I do, then have some some scrambled egg, maybe some smoked salmon, and a load of wilted spinach with it. Happy days. Just get some of the fresh stuff in at every meal. Lunch, build it around a salad. Evening meal, a good variety of cooked vegetables. More colour, the better. The colours represent different spectrums of nutrients. You put those three things together, it ain't going to give you all the answers. Absolutely it's not. But you're hedging your bets because you're doing the opposite to the things in our modern diet that are killing us. And that has got to be a good place to start. Fantastic. And for the listeners, I hope that is genuinely drilled into your brain now. So, Dale, I've uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, I'm very, very sad to bring it to a close but lastly, can you let the listeners know where to find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? Right. Okay. So let's start with the ex exciting projects. I recently launched something called Nutrition Coaching Monthly because I realized that people needed to understand much more about nutrition. People are searching for answers now. People really are searching for answers. And when they're relying on the search engines or the press or social media they end up going round and round and round and round in circles and just don't know where to turn so they need a resource they can use that's actually reliable so i've set up something where i can teach people every month the members to this they get a live class every single month um you see the kind of depth that we go into we go into that and then some but it's interactive so people can ask questions as we go along and our student body is everything from high school students to general practitioners and everything in between so it goes to show that it's applicable to everyone and then also i do like a monthly open q a as well um bring guests in to talk about different things there's also also all sorts of benefits in there so that's something i've just launched so there's that i've uh, got another couple of books to write as well uh we're just going to be going into series three of each shop save which will go into production early next year uh yeah plenty going on plenty going on some other interesting online programs for next year as well that i can't wait to tell you about once there's more meat on the bones great and then if you want to find find more about me just get onto my, my website. It's just themedicinalchef.co.uk. So the URL's changed. themedicinalchef.co.uk. You can find everything on there. Fantastic. And for the listeners, I will put everything that we've spoken about into the show notes. Dale, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I Thank really you. do hope that we can speak again soon. Oh, definitely. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out 
and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. <laughs>